Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Working Therapist. I'm Hayden Bolick, and in this podcast, you're getting ready to listen to part two of Sensory Awareness with Rachel Beaver, who is one of our very special and talented OTs that work here at PDT. We are, in this podcast, going to talk about our little kids that fit into the Tigger or Eeyore category, or really our kids who experience sensory deficit areas that are under-responders and our sensory cravers. So I hope you enjoy Sensory Awareness Part 2. Welcome to The Working Therapist with Hayden Bolick, a podcast designed to help you grow more, do more, and be more as a therapist. The Working Therapist is an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. We're glad you've joined us for today's podcast. So here's your host, Hayden Bolick. So now let's talk about under-responders, our little Eeyore people. And let me just say this. I really love these little under-responders. I mean, bless their little hearts. You know, I think the over-responders and the cravers, and I know we're talking about the cravers in just a second, they tend to be the ones that sort of demand your attention a lot. But these under-responder people, these little Eeyores, It's less easy to spot them, but I think the more I've started paying attention a lot since your presentation, the more I start to recognize this. So either I'm over-identifying or they really are out there and I haven't realized it. So tell everybody what an under-responder is. Explain that to everybody first. So this was our child that was represented by like Eeyore character in mm-hmm. Winnie the Pooh. And they're ones that are less sensitive, less aware of sensory stimulation, whereas over-responder is like hyper-aware. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of you know, like your bump on a log type of child. Don't <laughs> seem to be aware of surroundings or seem to be ignoring you. They don't cry when they're hurt. They don't seem to notice when you touch them, when you call their name. Seem to have that poor inner drive, not really interested in exploring right. in the world around them. And just poor body awareness. may see a lot of clumsiness not able to grade their movements. So uh-huh. those are kind of some of your red flags. So they might do things like trip over their own feet kind of thing, or just if they're working to get into the circle time or whatever, they would maybe trip over kids. Would you see that? Would that be common? Yeah, definitely. These kids really benefit from PT and they tend to have just a real lack of awareness with that be to their environment or to gotcha. their own body. Gotcha. And really being difficult to engage, you might say the same thing to them five times before they respond or very slow to respond when you try to engage them. And they're also the child that you might see a lot of their own stemming. Mm -hmm. It could be with any of these patterns, but a lot of times these kind of kids really might be interested in their hands or want to watch things that are spinning and that sort of thing, trying to get some extra input because it takes so much for them to get back to the equilibrium, the balance that most people are at. Uh, So you see a lot of the self-stemming with them uh, also. Gotcha. That makes sense. So it's easier for them since they're under responding to basically every sensory type of situation. Then it's easy for them to sort of get lost in their own little fantasy thing. Yes. Really, I'm asking questions too at this just to make sure I'm right. So this would be the child that maybe would play by themselves in the doll area. And if they're verbal and stuff, they may have a whole place scenario with just them with the dolls, but they're not involving other people. And so it's just them in their own little world, right? Yeah, you can definitely see that if a child is higher level with maybe their mm-hmm. language skills, they see a lot of that just being in their own world, just not aware of the outside environment. So so for the kids whose language is not that advanced, would these kids also sort of look like they're just uninterested and unengaged? And you said like bump on a log, they just sort of like they're not really into anything, not interested. I think you made a good point because they're not displaying behaviors that are aggressive or right. gain attention. They may be the child that 
is kind of missed or mm. if a teacher or parent is having to respond to this child that is having a meltdown or biting and pinching other kids, they're going to respond to that first. And this child may yeah. be sitting quietly at circle time, but they have no idea what's going on in circle time and are not getting anything out of it, but they're sitting quietly there, that kind of thing. So yes. you have to just engage them in a different way. I've really been thinking about these little Eeyore people, Rachel, since your presentation. So that's why a lot of these questions are coming from this. But also, sometimes I'll hear kids, I'll say like they're stuck on the loop tape. They'll repeat phrases or sometimes even paragraphs from videos or movies or books, just sort of a loop tape in their head. They'll just repeat things that they've heard, and they're really not that demanding of kids. So they're not the biters, not usually. They're not hitting. They're not having a tantrum usually. And so it is sort of easy to overlook them and think, oh, well, they're very well behaved or they are understanding or they're paying attention because they're not really that loud. But these kids are really missing a lot. And so sometimes these kids, I'm finding that their language is sometimes significantly more impaired than maybe an over-responder because these kids really aren't with us and left to their own devices. They're not engaging and they're not learning. Yeah, I think that's something that I see a lot with under-responders is a lot of echoing. Yeah. And I think it's part of being in their own world a little bit that you just kind of hear them repeating things or just doing that kind of the loop type of thing. I definitely think that you see that a lot as well. Yeah. So I'm not off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So you talked about in the presentation sort of what do we do? So what's the therapeutic approach for these little people? So for them, a good little catchphrase is the fast blast as opposed Uh to the low slow. Right. So going to give them intense input and blast of input because they habituate so quickly to things. So you have to make it very unpredictable and very quick and trying to use that to like alert their system. So... With these kids, they really do take a lot of energy. You may be doing 80% of the work and they're doing like 20% as far as just having to be like really overly animated, very dramatic, kind of that therapeutic use of self, how you get them engaged and doing a lot of sensory activities, especially the vestibular system. That's a really easy one to give fast blast input to that's very unpredictable and to get them alert and ready to participate also doing a lot of proprioceptive type of things. One little boy we have, it really stems on his hands. But if you can get him doing a lot of joint compression or proprioceptive input to his body, especially his hands, then he can stop stemming with them for a minute to actually do an activity. So something like that. You know, he might see you do it and he might even reach for a toy, but then he has to go back to stemming his hands. It's really interesting. Mm-hmm. If he can get enough input, then he's able actually to do activities and stop that stemming for a minute. So you need a lot of high energy for them. Whereas the over-responder, you're trying to be very calm and provide that gotcha. input to them. After the end of the under-responder sessions, you've earned your keep for that day. <laughs> you're working. They're exhausting. They're exhausting. I, uh, <laughs> I have to get caffeine before one of my afternoons. Yeah. I just have a couple of kiddos that are more like that under-responder. <laughs> and it makes you think a lot, too, because about the time you think, okay, yeah, they habituate. And so then you got to mix it up with something new. So you have to constantly be thinking during the session to keep it fresh, new, because they can habituate so fast. And you can really kind of see as you're working with them where they just go back to zoning out. Yeah. So it's definitely a lot of energy on the part of the therapist. You know, it is a tiring type of therapy. It's therapist intense. You have to sort of be on that whole session. Not that you wouldn't be, but you have to constantly be thinking. So are there some easy things that you know that we can use in the session to sort of help us to keep it fresh so that when these kids start to habituate, there's something quick you could do to help 
with that? Yeah, well, your vestibular system, of course, is an easy one to engage. Changing head positions is very alerting. So all of your equipment that's your therapy swings and ramps and scooter boards and inclines, all those kind of things are great to use. And then I hadn't talked yet about using smell. Mm -hmm. That's the only sensation that goes directly to your cortex. And sometimes using alerting smells like mint or citrus can be a good way to alert the system. Okay, but it's intense therapy. You've got to be animated and you've got to constantly thinking on your toes because these kids habituate quickly, like yeah, you're saying. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. So that brings us to our little tigger people, which are sensory cravers, right? Yeah. So that's kind of the third subtype that I talked about. And then there's right. a couple other ones that we didn't go into as much, but those are more related to postural disorder, like just the motor planning aspects. Mm. So that's a little bit different topic. So the sensory craving is like you said, your tigger child that's constantly on the move. They're probably very athletic, taking those excessive risks. We might describe them as being like sensation seeking. The new term is sensory craving. Ah. And the reason for that is it's kind of linked to being the same nervous system set up as someone who has addictive personality. They always want more, never seem to get enough sensory stimulation, just kind of that insatiable desire. So they're different than the other two in the sense that just giving them more input is increasing their energy. They don't necessarily ever feel full. Uh, So this is a child that you're going to see doing like their risk-taking behaviors, maybe overly affectionate, not really understanding their space, other people's space, being very controlling in situations, not being able to wait their turn, being very impulsive, interrupting, and it can be very demanding. But as opposed to like some of the other systems, they actually might be very athletic and have motor skills, but with them, you're kind of working on taking that sensory seeking and giving it like a goal. So they're not just Uh, spinning in the swing just to spin in the swing, but they're giving them a focus for the sensory caving behavior, then also helping them to stop and to observe their surroundings, to learn how to slow themselves down and observe what's going on because they're just the train wreck child that comes through and they've knocked every child down, thrown all the toys all over, jumped up on the ceiling kind of thing. It's just like a train wreck after they've gone through the room. So that's that kind of child. And a lot of times they benefit from having some boundaries, learning their space and other people's space Ah. that can really help them with their attention and then with their awareness to learn where they are in space and develop those boundaries. They just don't have those boundaries. So now with these types of kids, are they seeking sensory input, tactile, visually, auditory, everything, or are they craving in just specific areas? With each of the patterns, they tend to kind of fall under certain systems, but it can be in any of them. A lot of times it's more your vestibular and your proprioceptive system, the constantly Mm -hmm. on the move, wanting to, you know, crash into things jumping off high surfaces and getting that impact. So it tends to be in those systems. I also feel like a lot of times it can be visual. A lot of times these are the kids that have screen obsession, right. which may be any of the patterns, but especially the sensory craving where it's just the glow of the computer screen and like right. the movements mm-hmm. of the games or the videos and stuff like that that are on there that is very like alerting to them. So they never really get enough. So they're a child that's really important to limit Mm -hmm. screen time because it's kind of that addictive personality that is just like more, more, more. And like they would sit and play with the iPad all day if you would let them. So it can be one that you have to especially watch for that too, that visual seeking, especially with the technology that we have right now with iPads and tablets, stuff like that. Gotcha. So for these kids, they're constantly seeking, seeking, seeking. They'll never get enough, right? Kind yeah. Of- before they kind of thought it was a similar pattern to the under responder, not getting enough input into their system. So they need more to be able to reach their balance. But 
Now they think it really is a totally different way their nervous system works. And it's not that they necessarily need more. They just need it in a structured way. Because <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they're never going to get enough of anything. So instead you just structure and you teach them what the appropriate amount is so they can start to learn how to regulate it themselves. So you yeah. basically are regulating it for them and then they eventually learn how to do it for themselves. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Because there never is enough. That's not the goal anymore. Yeah, that's kind of yeah. something that's changes there. Doing more of those brain studies and looking on a micro level how their systems all look different. Well, because I was just thinking because some kids mouth a lot of things. And I could see a sensory craver really putting everything in their mouth, maybe craving yes, that. And definitely. so sometimes, you know, in the past... We've thought, okay, well, you just give them more input, like vibration and different textures and tastes and that kind of stuff, but it's never enough. So this makes sense to me. I get it because it really is never enough. You can do oral stimulation, vibration and taste and textures and everything else, and it just doesn't ever get better sometimes. But I see a lot of kids putting things in their mouth. And, you know, wonder if some of these kids that are the cravers sometimes would be diagnosed as hyperactive or attention deficit when really that maybe is not the problem. It's just their craving movement or their cravings something and they just look very hyperactive because they're not sitting still ever and they're jumping off of stuff and they're never paying attention but maybe it's not an ADHD issue maybe it's just a craving issue. A lot of times sensory processing issues go hand in hand with some other diagnoses they really tend to go together a lot but it can be a thing in its own as well but it is very common with children with autism, children Mm -hmm. with ADHD, fragile X, pervasive developmental disorder. A lot of other diagnoses almost always have SPD as well. Mm, That makes sense. So I think this information was so very well received. Let's talk a little bit about the presentation and maybe some of the questions and stuff that the families asked and the different people asked. I thought there was great questions. I thought people were super engaged. One of my takeaways from it was that the screen time issue, and you just talked about it, Rachel, is a real issue and problem for parents. I think by and large, everybody in the room had questions about different issues with the iPad or the computer with their kids. And so I think no matter if they're a under responder, over responder, or sensory craver, I think by and large parents all had this issue with screen time. They were all asking questions about that. Yeah, that was definitely a big one. In general, I think a lot of them had a child in mind, and so they kind of asked them questions that were kind of individual to the children, which of course can't fully answer unless you're sure. working with that child. But I think the iPad was a big one. And then a lot of them kind of asking about long term effects and is right. this something where you can actually kind of help change their nervous system and then they wouldn't need maybe as many any supports or strategies and so kind of thinking long term for their kids so I think that was another area people ask about the iPad was a big one and it really depends on which kind of subtype they have but sometimes you can bridge them from playing with something on the iPad to then bringing over the real concrete toys you know, if they like a farm-related video game, then bringing over farm toys. Or mm-hmm. you can use it for the child that has trouble with like a circle time. They're under responder. You know, maybe they look through the iPad at the teacher. Mm-hmm. And then when they're looking at the screen and see the teacher, it's a lot easier for them to take in what she's saying as opposed to like across the room or for the sensory craver not using that as a reward because it really isn't beneficial for them. Right. So there's different things depending on the subtype. But I know that was a big question. Another area we kind of talked about in the presentation was, is it a sensory issue or is it just a behavior? They're just acting out. And so I think that was a good thing we talked about. I mean, really, if a child's under three, like it's always sensory. 
And I think something we talked about was kind of changing the mindset to not be so much, is it sensory, is it behavior, but what is this child trying to communicate to me? Because Mm -hmm. they obviously are responding a certain way for a reason. So then that was kind of the whole idea of the presentation was, what are they trying to tell me that they're overwhelmed by this or that they, you know, need more to be able to engage. So kind of figuring out what their signs are and then now how can I respond to help them best rather than just kind of being like, you know, why can't this chat sit still or letting yourself have more of the mindset of they're just like a problem child and just trying to make sure that they are behaving. Mm -hmm. So viewing it a little bit differently was a big part. You're right. I think everybody had questions about the behavior and about the screen time stuff and basically everything you just said. And it was really hard to answer questions sometimes when you really don't have the child there in front of you because you're just sort of more talking in generality and ideas versus specific to that particular child. But the parents really did have questions about behavior and about screen time and how much or none, or the parents were all over the map with that. Some of them had just taken away all video, all iPads, all electronic, everything, and others were struggling with limiting the child's amount and then the behavior sometimes that happened in both situations when the child had no screen time or when the child had limited screen time or they were obsessing about it. Sure, sure. But I think it's important as therapists when you're treating kids just to know about these two issues. I would say every parent that was there had something to say on these two issues. And so I think as therapists treating kids, we need to be aware these are issues that are real for these parents and we need to sort of help when we have the child there in front of us and working with the parent. We really need to target and ask questions about this because I think it's a real stressor for families and causes disruption for the family and then also siblings. And it's some things that we just need to work through and problem solve and help families with. I think it's important for therapists to know that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Those are two big areas of concern. More than I realized. I treat and talk to parents and stuff all the time, but more intense than I realized. I knew it was a problem, but maybe more intense than I realized. Yeah, I think that was a big area. They wanted some input. So I think good to know whenever you're doing parent education or interviewing them or just doing an evaluation, ask about that area too. So I think it's just important for therapists to know as they're working with kids that sometimes this is not a problem that can be solved, but it's more just a situation that has to be managed. And so I think it's just probably an ongoing part of therapy as you're dealing with various issues, but I think this one is definitely one of them for any sensory child people are dealing with. I would say 100% across the board for all parents, they had an issue of some sort related to that screen time and behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that for sure. Well, As we wrap this up, let's tell people a little bit about some of the hands-on stuff that you had people do. We talked about it earlier. We had stuff from the dollar store. And so kind of describe a little bit about what you had us do and the hands-on portion. Okay. It's like for each sensory system, I tried to have an activity so that you could experience that system and give a good example. So for vision, I had a pinwheel and Mm -hmm. had people spin it looking at the pinwheel when it was in front of them and then at their periphery. Because that's something with a lot of kids you'll see, especially with autism, see them spinning things and looking at their periphery, like laying on the floor and looking from the side at toys. And so I want to give an example of that. A lot of times out of your periphery, it's more alerting. You're driving down the road, you see something out the corner of your eye, it alerts you because it might be dangerous. So that's why you see that behavior a lot. So that was a simple way to show that. And a lot of kids really like to watch things that are spinning. And so it's all because it's very visually alerting. And then for the auditory one, I tried to have them talk to somebody like across the group while there's other background conversation competing. Because for a lot of children having trouble with auditory or being very overwhelmed, they can't filter out everything that's going on. And so it becomes just a chaotic situation for them. So trying to get what the teacher's trying to tell them with all these other things, they can't filter out all the extraneous things. 
Right. For taste and smell, we try to give us some examples of some of those alerting versus calming type of smells. So something that's citrusy or putting something mint in your mouth versus something like lavender or vanilla that's like a calming scent. A lot of people have been looking to using essential oils in different ways. So that Mm -hmm. can be a way you can introduce smell as a calming input. Then for the vestibular system, I had people just do a couple of spins around with your eyes closed. Mm -hmm. Because if anyone's ever done that, you know, as a kid, you know, it disorients you. And then have someone try to tell them a motor command, like something to do. So like kids for their vestibular system that's off, it's not oriented when they're trying to do different motor activities, that's when they have a lot of seeming like clumsiness or just a really hard time trying to imitate movements or do things because they don't have that vestibular system developed. For the touch, we did light touch versus deep pressure. So mm-hmm. if somebody's tickling you or mm-hmm. someone just brushes you, that light touch is kind of that responding to danger type of response or the deep pressure of a hug or a massage, that sort of thing can be very calming for kids. And then you also did your proprioceptive system. You close your eyes and then someone positions your limb a certain way. You have your hand raised and then with your eyes closed, trying to mirror whatever they did on the other side without being able to look. So proprioception is your sense of where your body is in space, your joints and your muscles. And so a lot of kids are relying on their vision or they don't have that proprioceptive system developed. So also having that lack of body awareness, tripping and falling a lot. Right. And not being able to do some of those gross motor type of things, but also seeing fine motor with handwriting difficulties or that sort of thing. They don't have that proprioceptive sense, which is what you're using when you're developing your muscle memory for activities. So they can do that same activity 10 times, but it's like it's a brand new activity when you introduce it again because their body's not getting that internal message. Hmm. So those were some of the activities that we did. And then after each system, we try to do a case study. Could talk about one maybe... So for the touch system, it was a child that can't walk in line because people bump into them. They're having a big response. So then what could we do? Like maybe have them walk at the end of the line so no one's behind them. So we kind of try to give an example of how you might see this child in real life. And then what could you do with them? So that was the setup for that. What I like the best about you doing the hands-on stuff, I mean, I'm all hands-on anyway, so I love that type of learning. But I thought it was great because you broke down and gave an example, and then people did something with each sensory system. It just highlighted each area and made people slow down and think about just that area. And I think as therapists, we're sort of trained to do that. We train ourselves to sort of look at the whole child and all the things that are happening at one time. So we look at, okay, what's happening with this kid auditorily? Like, are they getting all this information? Well, okay, why are they avoiding the groups? Is it a touch issue? they've got but I don't think by large the public thinks that way and when it's your child that maybe is having some problems it's too subjective you've got too much feeling wrapped up in there to really pick apart various processes and so I think the way you did it and made people sort of sit down and look at each sensory system I thought it was really great because it just would highlight and you could pay attention to that one sensation. And so I thought that was really valuable to do. And a great takeaway, if anybody's listening who may have a presentation with parents or people who are other therapists, I thought this was excellent because it was just very functional and made great sense, quick, easy, and also fun and interactive. That's something when I was kind of putting together the format that Patty and I talked about, because it's a lot of information and Mm -hmm. it's something that I think really helps understand it when you have a hands-on experience because sensory processing itself is something that everybody does. So it really, I think, helps people understand from the child's perspective. And then for a lot of it, it was like, okay, that really sounds like my child. Now I know where they're coming from. Right. A lot of them kind of had those aha moments. So I think that was really good. Yep. It's being like, okay, that's my child to a T. And I think that's the cool thing. A lot of times, especially if you're doing an eval and you are working with this child for the first time, the parent's like, 
oh my gosh, so I'm not crazy. I'm not out of line. My in-laws aren't right that I'm just a horrible parent because honestly, that was another reason to do this is because sensory processing is kind of a newer thing. And especially they're doing a lot of new research with the brain imaging, all those kind of things. A lot of the public just sees the outward behaviors and they don't understand the underlying cause. And so they just see these behaviors and like, well, you're a bad parent or there's something wrong with your child. Even in the church, I think a lot of times there's a misunderstanding with children with disabilities and not seeing them for the gifts that they're offering, but just the problems that they cause almost, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And for me in a church, they want to create an environment that's supporting these parents because with any child, you need support, but especially these kids that have extra issues going on, they need support and resources even more so. And what better place to find that in the community? I know that was a big goal of me in a church, wanting to kind of provide that and kind of change that perspective on disabilities. Yeah. And when people don't really know, they sort of shy away and don't get involved because you don't know what to do. And so I think a lot of times people do shy away. So I agree. And that's another reason for doing the presentation to educate people. And Mana Church is doing a great job of naming the issue and addressing it head on and making it so there's a place that parents can get support and get some help. I say all the time that it's really hard to get to church on Sunday morning. I don't know why. I can get to work five days a week, but daggum, Sunday morning, it's like, mm, it's a toughie. But if you've got a child also with special needs, that's a whole nother level of stress involved in just daily operations and interactions. And so church should be a refuge and not necessarily like, oh, I don't want to go there because my child isn't welcome or that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, but I agree. I think you addressing it and you talking about these issues really caused a great amount of awareness and maybe for people to start thinking differently and understanding things better because it's just new information for them. So I thought it was great. So as we start to wrap up, have we missed anything? I think we've got a pretty good overview. And then I know the whole PowerPoint from the presentation I did was going to be available. So of course Uh that goes into a lot more detail and hopefully it could be a template if somebody was wanting to do something similar. Patty, who I mentioned, kind of was helping me put together presentations. She's done similar ones. And so she helped me come up with some of the format based on things she had done. So we kind of reworked it. So hopefully then that might be a good setup to help somebody else who's wanting to do something similar. Heck yeah. You know, I heard this from Rick Warren in a sermon been a while ago now, but he says that he doesn't believe in plagiarism. He says that I could go out and copy something that somebody else says, but no matter what happens, I sort of put my own spin on it. So I'm down with Rick Warren. I don't believe in plagiarism either. So, hey, I think that's very generous of you to put yourself out there and people should use it. And it's not like, hey, I'm just going to copy what Rachel said. People out there will put their own spin on it and it'll become theirs. And then this no longer plagiarized. So there you have it. Not that it ever was to begin with, but (laughs) I think it's really generous of you to put it out there and let people use it because it's a great resource. That was kind of the whole attitude of the presentation and what Man Church wanted to do. It's just providing resources. So hopefully some will find it helpful. Yep. And I don't think it has to also just be used in churches. Not it could be used with teachers at a daycare. It could be used with all kinds of different situations. The information in there is great and real hands-on and useful. And it could be used just basically to inform and educate people and get people understanding this better because it's just hard to clarify this and your information really does. So thank you, Rachel, so much for participating and doing this podcast with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. I hope you have a great day working with your little people with different sensory stuff. Oh, yes. That's what you're going back to. So thank you again, Rachel. I appreciate it. If you guys want to listen to the podcast about Mana Church and their special needs ministry with Debbie Hume, there's a two-part series that we did with her. It's very interesting and explains what they're doing and why they're doing it and explains this ministry in a lot more detail. And so catch that if you haven't done that. But thanks everybody for listening today. And I know this information will be very helpful. Again, it's been very helpful to me. I love the whole Tigger, Eeyore, Rabbit reference. I really honestly, Rachel, have been using that and thinking of it that way. And it just makes sense to me. And I think it will make sense to other people. So 
download Rachel's presentation from the show notes and you can go to www.workingtherapist.com and get all the links and all the information and see our other podcast and catch the other podcast that Rachel did with me called Introduction to Visual Perceptual Deficits. So, hey, if you're like, oh my gosh, this Rachel girl is a genius. I want more. Check that one out. (laughs) And she is a genius. So there you go. So thank you again, Rachel. Thanks so much. Yep. And thanks everybody for listening. And I'll catch you next time on another episode of The Working Therapist. Thanks for joining us for today's edition of The Working Therapist, an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. If you would like more information regarding this podcast or would like to get in touch with us for any reason, visit us on the web at www.pediatricdt.com. That's pediatricdt.com. 